In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to Holy Cross. We're glad that you're with us this morning. We're glad that you've joined us for Reformation Sunday. Let me invite you to take out this handout that you have here. It's even in color today because of the importance of this Sunday. So take out that handout. It will help you very much as we go along this morning. Today, you see, is the 499th celebration of the day in which the Protestant Reformation began in Wittenberg, Germany. That day, October 31st, 1517, a young monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed a challenge to the door of the castle church. It was an invitation for scholars to debate 95 theses or 95 propositions and it dealt directly with the selling of indulgences. But indirectly, it asked much larger questions. What's the nature of salvation? Who has authority in the church? Who are the people of God? And at that moment, the entire history of the Western world was set on a radically different course. Though no one, neither Martin Luther nor anyone else alive at that time, realized exactly what was happening. Well, this morning, if you're from a tradition, a place that acknowledges the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as the supreme authority over the church today, then you are a son or daughter of the Reformation, no matter what denomination you may claim. If you're from this kind of background, I say that you are very fortunate indeed. Why? Because the scriptures are like the keel of a ship, a very large and heavy keel that steady its course. If you lose that strong and heavy keel, the ship begins to wander off course. And that is exactly where the church was at the start of the 16th century. It had lost its keel, and it was wandering far off course. Now, the church had lost its way with respect to the question, how is a person saved? And the Reformation insisted that the biblical answer must be. In fact, it had always been that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, as taught by Scripture alone. Now, of course, many of us here this morning are familiar with this motto of the Reformation. It's marvelous stuff. But you see, the downside in modern times is that, like most mottos, it only becomes a caricature of the real discussion. A discussion that, in fact, was highly nuanced. Sometimes, the whole Reformation motto has been boiled down to this. Somewhere, about the year 100 AD, God the Holy Spirit left the scene. 
And on his departure, he left us a book, which, if we let well-trained and highly specialized experts work on it, can provide useful and important information about being a Christian. But friends, this is not just a book. The scriptures are the life-giving presence of the Word of God incarnate available to us in written form. The scriptures are the key channel by which the Holy Spirit is known to the church. In fact, the scriptures are the primary means by which the Holy Spirit of God makes known to us the will of the Father. Well then, if the Reformation can't simply be packaged up as a clever little motto, what was it? And why in the world is it worth remembering 499 long years later? Well, let me start with an illustration from my garage door. You see, I got one of those great big, solid wood, heavy, old-fashioned garage doors. It weighs a ton. It was beautifully made, and nobody, I promise you, will ever just kick it in and get access to my house. Now, about three months ago, it started to creak and to groan. And what I didn't realize at the time is that my garage door was put together with about 50 bolts. 50 bolts. And over time, they began to get loose. Well, I just ignored the warning signs. And after a few weeks, the door began to wobble. And pretty soon, it was wobbling really badly. And by that time, you know, I knew something was wrong, but I just continued to ignore it. Because it's a great big monster of a thing, and I wasn't sure if I could fix it even if I had to. Well, finally the day came when the door wobbled so wildly it came right off the rails. The problem had gotten so bad I could no longer ignore it. Now, the history and the course of the Reformation are a lot like my garage door. You see, as far back as the year 1370, individuals could see that the screws in the church were getting a little loose. And so some began to call for reform. There was an Englishman by the name of John Wycliffe who even formed a whole community of believers together seeking to renew Christian living. Now, what were some of these loose screws? Well, one of them was the appalling ignorance of the clergy. Because just before John Wycliffe's time, the Black Death swept through Europe. People fled the cities as, as three out of every ten people died. A hundred million people died in Europe from the Black Death. Well, of course... The best and most faithful priest did not flee the cities. They stayed there with the sick and dying. So nine out of ten of them died. And when it was all over, 
the priests were replaced by just about anybody, literate or not, who could say the Lord's Prayer. Well, there was a second screw that was coming loose. For the Pope himself got entangled in the politics of the day. He became a puppet of the French king, and he actually moved to Avignon, France, though he was supposed to be the Bishop of Rome. At the end of this period, there were even two popes, one in France and one in Rome, warring with one another. And so by this time, it was really evident that the screws were quite loose. You know, if the church could not decide something as important and certainly as straightforward as who the pope was, people began to wonder, what else is it that they don't know up there? Well, for the next hundred years, the ignorance and the worldliness of the church continued unabated, particularly in Italy. By the end of the 1400s, the church was wobbling wildly, particularly at the highest levels of the institution. In Florence, a brave but ascetic Dominican friar by the name of Savonarola preached to great crowds and he called them and the highest churchmen to repentance and to simplicity of life. Now, Savonarola was a bit of a troubled soul. And he had his own problems, and uh, he was eventually burnt at the stake for making up visions that he saw from heaven and hearing voices from God. Nevertheless, by now it was plain, even to the common man, that things were growing terribly wrong in the church in which they all were a part. The tipping point which would provoke the events of October 1517 was not very far away. Well, these excesses that Savonarola had preached against were entirely visible in Pope Leo X. He was one of the Medici family. His desire was to build the biggest basilica in the whole world. A man far more interested in politics than theology... Leo realized it was going to take a whole lot of money to build St. Peter's and the Vatican. So he set out on a complex and a very well-planned campaign to sell indulgences to raise funds that he needed for his church. Now, how did that work? Well, you see, Leo maintained the church did have authority to remove temporal punishments from sins that God had already forgiven. So, technically, these indulgences only applied to lesser sins, not mortal sins, and two, only to sinners who had exhibited true contrition. <laughs> but the, by the time Leo's agents got through hawking his spiritual wares, it appeared anybody could get a get-out-of-jail get card for free if they were willing to pay the price. In fact, they could get it even before they had sinned. You see, the sales pitch went like this. 
Every time a copper in the treasury clinks, a soul from purgatory springs. And it even rhymes in German. Surely, thought Martin Luther, this cannot be what the scriptures teach. Well, of course it wasn't. Even later, Roman Catholic reformers would acknowledge that money had gotten the better of thoughtful theology. But Luther's ideas ignited a tinderbox that had been 200 years in the making. And before long, reformational ideas were spreading all over Europe through that means of wonderful technology called the iPhone 7. No, but the printing press had revolutionized how people received information. And pretty soon, the Reformation and its ideas filled every corner of Europe. England, too, was ripe for the Reformation. And it was ripe not so much because of the corruption of the church, but because the ground had already been plowed and the seed already sown among the English clergy. Now, what was that seed? That seed was the word of God in the original languages. You see, for centuries, the Bible of the Roman Catholic Church was the Latin Bible. And in the, year in, which it was, in the years in which it was first translated, around 400 or so, that was the vernacular that everybody spoke. But by the year 1400, Latin was the language only of scholars, the educated, and the church. Now further, in numerous places in the Latin Bible, it had come to the point where it was being reinterpreted by the medieval theologians in ways that didn't look at all like what the original writers intended. But that situation, you see, was about to change. Because in the late 1400, universities began to teach Greek once again. And that meant that scholars and priests could read the New Testament in the original languages. And everywhere, scholars began to observe, look, the, the church is teaching this, but I'm reading the Bible in Greek, and it says this. The church declares Peter and Paul taught this, and I'm reading their letters in the original, and that's not what they say. And nowhere was this phenomenon more strongly felt than in England. Dr. Thomas Cranmer, professor at Cambridge, insisted that every single clergyman before he would be graduated, graduated had to be skilled in the scriptures in their original languages. We actually have records of several students. He said, uh-uh, go back. you got another two years. You're just simply not good enough to get through. And what Cranmer did for the clergy, William Tyndale was to do for the laity. Tyndale gave his life for the proposition that the average Christian should have, know, read, and hold the word of God in English for him or herself. 
even if there had been no black death, even if there had been no avion papacy, even if Savonarola had had no corruption to rail against in the church, and even if indulgences had not been sold in Germany, as indeed they had not been in England, this little book made affordable and available to the common man would have assured the Reformation took place. This is a little copy of William Tyndale's 1526 edition. It was about the right size. It was affordable to the average worker. And you'd see it just stick right up those big Tudor sleeves and he could take it to work with him and on his lunch hour he could read it. It was better than any iPhone ever invented. It revolutionized people's thinking. Well, after all was said and done, what exactly did the Reformation accomplish? In a world where church and state were by both desire and design completely enmeshed, it certainly was inevitable that great changes in religion would mean huge upheavals in politics. In fact, those political changes took nearly 120 years to get themselves sorted out after Luther's time. But for us here in the New World, where it is just axiomatic that church and state are separated, what are the theological and other consequences of the Reformation? Well, they continue to affect us even up to the present moment. Indeed, the existence of our own Anglican Church in North America is a tribute to the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is still in the business of reforming His Church. Now, I think there are at least three things that we can say the Reformation accomplished religiously. In fact, they affect how we do church up to this very moment. Every single day. The first of all is this. The Reformation clarified in a way never ever fully explained before the answer to the question, how are people saved? You'd think it wouldn't take 1,500 years, would you? Now, here's the Reformation answer to the question. Salvation, you see, is a three-part entity. Each part is distinct. We can truthfully say, I was saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. But each of the three parts is inseparable from one another. So whether we say, I was saved, I am, or I will be saved, we are saying all three tenses at the same time. Our salvation consists of a fully completed past justification, of an ongoing sanctification, not to merit, but to true holiness. And it consists of the certainty of future glorification. And without the Reformation, we would never have been able to speak this way with confidence. 
The second thing the Reformation did was to clarify the nature of the church. What is the church? The church is a priesthood of every single believer. Priests and bishops are not fundamentally different things than any other believer. Although the Holy Spirit has assigned to them different roles or functions in the body of Christ. At its heart, the church is not a human or political institution. It is the body of Christ made up of all those who have been chosen out of every tribe and tongue and nation. Now, the church does have a visible outward institutional structure. But that structure is not one monolithic organization presided over by one man. Rather, the church appears in various forms and various manifestations as it goes from place to place, culture to culture, age to age, proclaiming the Great Commission. Finally, the Reformation clarified this. From whence is the authority in the church? From whence the authority in the church? I want you to listen to this very carefully. Does the authority of the church reside in one human man? Is it based in several select men? Does it contain something that has been passed on to the successors of the apostles that guarantees their authority and their infallibility? The Reformation answer to that question is no. The authority of the church fundamentally resides in the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. The authority of the church does not reside in the first instance in an individual or, an in, or in a visible institution. Though, of course, that authority is manifested in the world through visible structures. We aren't ghosts. We are incarnated people. The authority of the church comes from the Holy Spirit and it exists in the church only in so far as the church is faithful to the teaching of the apostles. To leave that authority is to leave all authority behind. Okay. As we close this morning, I'd like to add a little word of caution to go with the rest of this message, okay? For those of us here this morning that are dyed-in-the-wool Protestants, it's very important to remember what the Reformation did not do, okay? First of all, the Reformation did not separate us from God's church, nor did it start the church all over again. Now, sometimes Protestants tell their story as if everything the church did or said before 1517 just never happened. <laughs> or alternatively, 
that everybody and everything in the church before the Reformation was so entirely corrupt that in fact it was no church at all. But that is completely false. There is and there has been only one church throughout the ages. She is your mother. Okay, occasionally she has suffered from illness and sometimes even dementia. But she is and she remains your only mother. Secondly, the Reformation did not make new demands upon the church. The church has always belonged to Christ and the demands upon her have always been exactly what they are even today. The church must be pure. The church is called to put away worldliness and the church must be distinct from the world. The church is to be in the world but not of the world. The church is to be in the world bearing witness to the love of God even though we don't belong to the world. Thirdly, the Reformation did not invalidate 1,500 years of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Now sometimes Protestants speak as if the Holy Spirit of God disappeared somewhere about 100 A.D. And he has just recently shown up in the charismatic movement of the 19th and 20th centuries. Hogwash. God's Holy Spirit has been in the church since the day of Pentecost. He has been instructing us and teaching us for 21 long centuries, and those are the facts. Now, because of those facts, it is not true what some Protestants claim. Sometimes they say, to every man, his own interpretation of the Bible. In other words, it's just me, my Bible, and Jesus. But that is a terrible caricature of the Reformation. The scriptures have been given to all the church, and so has his spirit. The work of understanding scripture, whether through the creeds, through the articles, through the prayer book, is a collective task given to the whole church. Now, that doesn't mean that it isn't important for each individual to read and study the Bible for themselves. You are the church. But none of us, whether as an individual or a local church or even as a whole denomination, is in the right if our understanding of Scripture is fundamentally something different than what everyone everywhere has always believed. Now that leads to the fourth thing that the Reformation did not do. The Reformation did not fundamentally change what the church is. For if the church exists, it exists by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the teaching of the apostles. It is that authority which constitutes our existence. 
when we depart from the authority of Jesus and his apostles, we are no longer a church, but simply a collection of self-deceived men and women. Yes, the Holy Spirit is with us. Yes, the Holy Spirit is teaching us every day. But as we learn from him, as he instructs us in the scriptures, as he teaches us how to apply God's precious promises to the world around us, the Holy Spirit will never, ever contradict or deny what the apostles taught. So friends, how's your garage door this morning? Are there some bolts that are getting loose in your life? Are things starting to rattle about a bit? Is your life beginning to wobble back and forth? May I suggest to you this morning that what you need is not a new door, but a clear and better understanding of the original design. Perhaps this Sunday it's time for you to have your own little reformation, a restoration to the fullness of the walk that you once had in him. I invite you when you come to this table this morning to ask from God a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit through the word by which you have been reborn may you find power to live your life always reforming and being conformed to his image. Now this is the truth that the German monk was seeking to communicate to the world. And may it find an eager and full receptiveness.